Hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal's Editor Highlights Podcast. Each month, Chess Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peter Mazzone highlights key articles from the current issue of the journal to help clinicians stay informed about new research in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce this month's episode, here is Dr. Peter Mazzone. Thank you for tuning in to the Editor's Highlight Podcast for the February 2022 issue of the journal Chest. There's a great lineup of diverse content in this month's issue. Over the next 15 minutes, I'll provide a brief overview of key manuscripts published in each of our content areas, starting with our asthma content area. Global trends in the prevalence, deaths, and disability-adjusted life years for asthma are not well characterized. In this issue, Seferian colleagues used publicly available data from the Global Burden of Disease Study from 1990 through 2019 to address this gap. The point prevalence of asthma decreased by 24% and death rates by 51.3% between 1990 and 2019. The United States showed the highest age-standardized point prevalence rate, while the burden of asthma generally decreased with increasing sociodemographic index. High BMI, smoking, and occupational asthmagens contributed to asthma disability-adjusted life years. These findings highlight that asthma remains an important public health issue and point to the need for future research to understand and implement interventions that reduce the burden of asthma. This section also includes a chest review on asthma-COPD overlap. Next is our chest infections content area. A practical list of risk factors for invasive candida infection would help to decide when to add empirical antifungal therapy in patients with sepsis. In this issue, Thomas Rudell and colleagues report on a systematic review and meta-analysis to assess for risk factors for invasive candida infection. 34 studies were included, assessing 29 possible risk factors. Broad-spectrum antibiotics, blood transfusion, candida colonization, central venous catheter use, and total parenteral nutrition were found to be associated with the highest risk. This finding may help to guide the use of empiric antifungal therapy in patients with sepsis. Also in this section is a research letter describing the outcomes of lobectomy for treatment of pulmonary non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease, and another assessing mycobacterium growth indicator tube time to positivity as an early biomarker of treatment response in mycobacterium avium complex pulmonary disease. Completing this section is a narrative review on cancer in cystic fibrosis. On to our COPD content area. Direct-to-consumer genetic testing for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency may enhance early detection. In this issue, Ashenhurst and colleagues report on a cross-sectional study of over 195,000 individuals designed to determine if direct-to-consumer testing identifies previously undetected individuals with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency and the impact of this detection. 0.63% were found to have the PIZZ genotype, 
half of whom had a physician confirm the diagnosis, with 27% noting this was the first time they were aware of having alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. The diagnostic delay for these individuals was 22.3 years. The odds ratio for PIZZ smokers to report smoking reduction was 1.7, and for reduced alcohol consumption was 4.0. These results suggest direct-to-consumer testing can help identify previously undiagnosed alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, resulting in positive behavior change. Also in this section is a research letter describing computed tomography-assessed dysynapsis and airflow obstruction in early and mid-adulthood, and a How I Do It review about launching and nurturing a community stakeholder committee to enhance care and research for asthma and COPD. Next is our critical care content area. An association between compliance with the SEP1 quality measure and outcomes has not previously been reported. In this issue, Townsend and colleagues used propensity score matching and a hierarchical general linear model to estimate the treatment effects associated with compliance with SEP1 from patient-level data reported to Medicare by over 3,200 hospitals. In both standard matching and stringent matching, compliance was associated with a reduction in 30-day mortality with an absolute risk reduction of 4.1 to 5.7%. At the subject level, compliance was associated with a lower 30-day risk-adjusted mortality with an odds ratio of 0.83. These results suggest that rendering SEP1-compliant care could reduce the incidence of avoidable deaths. Other original research published in this section includes an evaluation of patient-perceived health after critical illness through analysis of two prospective longitudinal studies of ARDS survivors and a systematic review and meta-analysis of venous thromboembolism prophylaxis in critically ill adults. Completing this section, is a consensus statement from the Task Force for Mass Critical Care addressing the implementation of contingency strategies for mass critical care surge responses during COVID-19. On to our diffuse lung disease content area. Ryosigwad is an effective treatment in delaying the time to clinical worsening in patients with groups 1 and 4 pulmonary hypertension in this issue, Boffman and colleagues report the results of a double-blind placebo-controlled trial assessing whether Ryosigwat is more effective than placebo in prolonging time to clinical worsening in sarcoidosis-associated pulmonary hypertension. A total of 16 patients were enrolled and followed for one year. In the placebo group, five of eight met time to clinical worsening criteria while none of the patients who received Ryosigwat did. In addition, the six-minute walk distance decreased by 56 meters in the control group and rose by 43 meters in the treatment group. This study suggests that Ryosigwat could be effective in preventing clinical worsening and improving exercise capacity in patients with sarcoidosis-associated pulmonary hypertension. Also in this section, is an original research study that describes the association between lung function 
in hypersensitivity pneumonitis, an alternative gene expression by toll interacting protein variants, as well as a special feature report of an expert survey initiative about the detection and early referral of patients with interstitial lung abnormalities. Our education and clinical practice content area is next. Appropriate education about domiciliary oxygen therapy can lead to better knowledge, clearer expectations, and improved adherence. In this issue, Eng and colleagues used validated tools to evaluate the resource quality, suitability, reliability, and readability of currently available online patient resources on domiciliary oxygen therapy. 36 websites met inclusion criteria. Websites from foundation or advocacy organizations scored highest in quality and suitability, while those from industry or for-profit sites had the best content score. Only five websites met the four JAMA benchmarks. Median readability scores exceeded recommended reading grades for consumer health-related education. These results suggest that the overall quality, suitability, reliability, and content of online health resources for domiciliary oxygen therapy are low to moderate standard, helping health professionals to be aware of the limitations of available resources. Completing this section is a consensus statement from the Learning Ultrasound and Critical Care Initiative about the criteria, processes, and determination of competence in basic critical care echocardiography training. Next is our pulmonary vascular content area. The association between heart rate and pulmonary embolism outcomes has not been well studied. In this issue, Jauer Guzar and colleagues evaluated the association between admission heart rate and 30-day all-cause and PE-specific mortality in over 44,000 consecutive non-hypotensive patients with symptomatic PE in order to determine if there's an association between baseline heart rate and PE outcomes. A positive association between admission heart rate and 30-day all-cause and PE-specific mortality was found. When compared to those with a heart rate of 80 to 99, the odds ratio for mortality increased with every 10-beat interval to a maximum of 2.4 for a heart rate greater than 140 beats per minute, and decreased with every 10-beat interval to a low of 0.5 for a heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute. A cutoff of 80 beats per minute increased the sensitivity of the simplified pulmonary embolism severity index, and a cutoff of 140 beats per minute increased the specificity of the BOVA score. These results support the use of a heart rate cutoff in prognostication of non-hypotensive patients with acute symptomatic pulmonary embolism. Completing this section is a research letter describing pulmonary embolectomy in patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms and a chest review on the diagnostic prognostic, and therapeutic implications of right heart pulmonary circulation unit involvement in left-sided heart failure. Our sleep medicine content area is next. 
the excessively sleepy subtype of moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea has been found to be associated with a higher risk of cardiovascular death. Limited associations between the Epworth sleepiness scale and other measures of daytime sleepiness have been found. In a research letter in this issue, Mazadi and colleagues assessed whether the Epworth sleepiness scale was sufficient to accurately identify the excessively sleepy subtype in two clinical-based cohorts and a community-based cohort, including approximately 3,500 patients. They found higher Epworth sleepiness scale scores in excessively sleepy participants. An Epworth sleepiness scale score greater than 10 had a 96.6% sensitivity and 57.2% specificity in identifying the excessively sleepy subtype. Including the top five sleepiness-related symptoms improved the accuracy to a sensitivity of 93% and specificity of 83.4%. These results suggest that the inclusion of sleepiness symptom items with the Epworth sleepiness scale can improve the accuracy of identifying excessively sleepy individuals, thus helping to identify patients at greatest cardiovascular risk. Next is our thoracic oncology content area. The frequency of cancer and the accuracy of prediction models have not been studied in large population-based samples of patients with incidental pulmonary nodules measuring greater than eight millimeters in diameter. In this issue, the Chani and colleagues assembled a retrospective cohort of 23,780 individuals with a nodule measuring greater than eight millimeters to determine the frequency of cancer by size and smoking history and the accuracy of two widely used nodule risk prediction models. The sample included 9.9% with a lung cancer diagnosis within 27 months of nodule identification, 5.4% of individuals who have never smoked, 12.2% of individuals who previously smoked, and 17.7% of those who continue to smoke. Cancer rates were 5.7% in those with nodules 9 to 15 millimeters, 12.1% in 15 to 20 millimeters, and 18.4% in those 20 to 30 millimeters. The male model, with an area under the curve of 0.747, was more accurate than the Brock model at 0.713, though both overestimated the probability of cancer. These results help clarify the rate of lung cancer in incidental pulmonary nodules greater than eight millimeters in diameter and the accuracy of existing prediction models. Also in this section is original research assessing shape-sensing robotic-assisted bronchoscopy in the diagnosis of pulmonary parenchymal lesions. And research letters describing lung cancer screening rates during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as a qualitative description of barriers faced by those charged with operationalizing lung cancer screening. Finally, I encourage you to take a look at our humanities and chess medicine section, where you will find pieces describing historical and ethical controversies surrounding the determination of cardiovascular and cardiopulmonary death and a comparative analysis of state pandemic preparedness plans focus on rationing with respect to age during the pandemic.
Our case series publications for the month provide novel and educational cases to help improve your clinical skills. I hope you enjoy reading all of the high-quality content available in this month's issue of CHEST. As always, I'm grateful to the authors of this work, the reviewers who volunteered their time to improve the quality of these manuscripts, and to our editorial board for guiding everything that we do. Until next month, I hope you enjoy the February issue. Thanks for listening to the Chess Journal's Editor Highlights Podcast. You can find the articles mentioned in this podcast and more on chestjournal.org. And if you're looking for more context and commentary on articles in the current issue, please check out the original Chess Journal podcast, which features in-depth discussions with the authors themselves. We'll be back again with more Editor's Highlights next month.